Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 18th, 2021. It's late morning in California. And today I have a little quiz for you to introduce the show. Um, what do all these characters have in common? They seem to be unrelated, but they actually have one thing in common. The first is the great um, freedom activist Rosa Parks from Alabama. The second is the notorious terrorist Mohammed Atta, who knocked down one of the towers in New York City on uh, 9-11. Uh, the third is uh, a well-known quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers. The fourth is one of the great heroes of American history, George Washington. And what would a quiz be without our fifth contestant, uh, Adolf Hitler, the, uh, the leader of Germany uh, during the Second World War and in the 1930s? So very simply, what is Rosa Parks, Mohammed Atta, Aaron Rodgers, George Washington, and Adolf Hitler have in common. My guest today on the show is a professor, or a distinguished professor of economics at, uh, uh, at the Stern School in, in uh, NYU and a, and a much published writer. And he has the answer, uh, William L. Silver, otherwise known as Bill. Bill, tell us what Rosa Parks, Mohammed Atta, Aaron Rodgers, George Washington, and Adolf Hitler have it all in common, and how you've actually incorporated this into your new book, uh, The Power of Nothing to Lose. Over to you, Bill. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, and you did pick uh, some of the characters that uh, populate the book. Uh, and they are all examples of uh, people who thought they had nothing to lose in a risky situation. And when someone thinks they have nothing to lose, or what I call downside protection, they have downside protection, they tend to take reckless decisions, undertaking reckless decisions. And perhaps the best example, the most familiar example, is Aaron Rodgers, normally a very, very uh, conservative uh, decision maker. He doesn't throw interceptions normally. But towards the end of the game, if Green Bay is losing by three or four points, he will become reckless and throw a Hail Mary pass. Why is that? Well, the downside is uh, another interception. That is almost nothing compared with the upside potential of winning the game. And that skewed outcome, big upside and limited downside, promotes daring do. Hail Mary pass, which is, of course, what the Hail Mary effect is derived from. Uh, on Wikipedia, it's not uh, Aaron Rodgers who features, but Roger Staubach, 
Um, is this unique to um, American football? And, and what does it have to do with the Roman Catholic Church? After all, uh, Hail Mary is a traditional Catholic prayer. I hope we're not going to get excommunicated, Bill, for this kind of, um, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, not very serious attitude towards uh, the so-called Virgin Mary. Did she have a lot to lose? Well, you know, uh, I wouldn't have used that phrase, not being a Catholic, I could get into trouble. But instead... Well, you seem I, to be the kind of guy, Bill, who likes to get into trouble. Well, under the right circumstances, when I have downside protection. But uh, uh, Roger Staubach was a great quarterback uh, for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, and uh, at the end of a game in the playoffs... Uh, he was losing. Uh, the, uh, the, the the Cowboys were losing, and he got into the uh, into the uh, huddle and said, "All right, guys, run into the end zone, and I'll throw it as far as I can." And he did. He doesn't say he closed his eyes, but he might as well have. And the touchdown, and he passed. The one of his receivers caught the pass, and after the game. Uh, the reporters crowded around Staubach and said, oh, what, what happened? And Staubach says, well, I don't really know, but I closed my eyes and said, a Hail Mary. And that is how this iconic phrase was born. Uh, and let me just add that those people, those of us who are not Americans or don't like American football, this is not the only place. I, I buy that. But the thing about the American uh, football um, example is that at the end of an American football game, whether it's Roger Staubach or Aaron Rodgers, they literally have nothing to lose because on the last play of the game, if, uh, if the team is behind, they throw it up the other end. If someone catches it, they win. And if they don't, they lose. So they have no option. But the other characters you bring up in the book, whether it's Rosa Parks or Mohammed Atta, uh, not not Aaron Rodgers, George Washington, uh, Adolf Hitler, they're not playing the final play of an American football game, are they? No, not at all. But in their mind, at those circumstances, they felt as though they had nothing to lose. Let me tell you a little bit about George Washington. There is this iconic picture of Washington crossing the Delaware. We're all, we've all seen it. This is a great, a great victory. In point of fact, it was a Hail Mary. And Washington said so right before. He didn't use the phrase Hail Mary though, did he? Well, no, but what he did was he said, look, we're losing. And his army was being defeated by Sir William Howe. And they, they were chasing the, the uh, uh, Washington's army into, uh, into Pennsylvania. And it was in the winter. And Washington was losing his troops. They wanted to go home. And he said, he writes to his cousin right before the battle in Mount Vernon. If this fails, that means crossing the Delaware to attack the Hessians in Trenton. If this fails, the game 
will be pretty well up. Are you that saying, Bill? Um, but- just like that sounds just like what Rogers would have said in the huddle. Yeah, but there's a difference in the sense that the game wouldn't have been entirely up. You're a professor of business and of risk. Are you saying that it that for uh, a man like Washington to take such decisive military action, they need to think in, in, in terms of this Hail Mary. They need to free themselves from the idea of risk because the Hail Mary is a, is a post-risk strategy, isn't it? When you say a post-risk strategy... Well, it means you've got nothing to lose, so there's no risk involved. Well, you know, there is no risk involved except after and and once you recognize that, you might as well behave what in in a way that is normally considered reckless. So, normally- but you seem to admire recklessness, Bill. This is something that, I mean, obviously the example of Hitler or of uh, Mohammed Atta, which we'll come to. These are not. Uh, admirable characters, but generally you seem to admire decisiveness. Is that fair? Well, let me let me uh, draw a distinction uh, a distinction between uh, an individual and I'll, I'm going to use Aaron Rodgers, uh, an individual who makes a decision that is normally a risky decision, but he bears all of the consequences of that risky decision. He and, of course, Green Bay Packers fans. But when those decisions, when that risky decision also has consequences beyond the individual, when those risky decisions affect others and cause collateral damage, then I would say that those risks come home to roost. I can give you the, let's go to the example of Adolf Hitler, which was a, which is a classic example of, in his mind, he had nothing to lose. And this was, uh, this was in what, in 1944, late 44, was it? December of 1944. Actually, let's go back just right after uh, America and Britain uh, invaded Normandy and swept across uh, France. Within six weeks, they were at the German uh, at the German border. All of Hitler's generals said, "It's time to give up and try to salvage what we have of our men, equipment, and so on." And Hitler, on the advice of Joseph Goebbels, who was his propagandist, used an American phrase, unconditional surrender, to tell, to tell his troops they had nothing to lose by continuing to fight. Why is that? Because it would would mean the end of Germany, unconditional surrender. And in fact, Hitler then planned a desperate counterattack, a counterattack that by every German general uh, reckoning was futile. It was like a staggered boxer's counterpunch, which does nothing 
except it's a it's a it causes further damage. And I even made a movie of it, Bill, The Battle of the Bulge, right? It certainly did. And we remember the Battle of the Bulge because in that movie, one of the dire consequences, one of the b- most bitter examples uh, of uh, an atrocity against American troops was the murder of 71 prisoners of war near the Belgian town of Malmedy. Collateral damage that Hitler did not consider when he said, we have nothing to lose. He served his own purposes. And for that, the Battle of the Bulge destroyed many, many German lives, as well as producing the worst atrocity. So when we say nothing to lose, and we say this is a nice characteristic, if you bear all the costs, that's fine. When others bear the costs, collateral damage is something that we have to worry about very much. One of the most admirable figures in the book um, is Rosa Parks, who famously wouldn't give up her seat in the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, Why is uh, Parks such a a strikingly dissimilar figure from Adolf Hitler, even if they both behaved as if they had nothing to lose? Well, look, uh, Rosa Parks was a brave woman uh, to sit in, in, in the, uh, the white section of a bus in defiance of segregation laws uh, in Alabama. And the question is, what gave her the strength to do that? She was a seamstress by trade. This is not a, a combative woman. And when she reflected she said, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't frightened. We had been mistreated all of my life. So I had nothing to lose by defying the law. And in this case, instead of there being collateral damage, which we are all many, all of us have heard that phrase, In this case, there was great collateral benefits because it led to a Montgomery bus boycott, which in fact was led by Martin Luther King. It was his first exposure to uh, to in the national spotlight. Do you think, Bill, um, to act so decisively in bravery like uh, Rosa Parks requires people to think that they have nothing to lose. One might also think of it in terms of Martin Luther King, who risked his life and lost his life for the the civil rights struggle. Does everyone have to think when they act decisively in history that they have nothing to lose? Well, frankly, I was stunned when I read that Rosa Parks felt as though she had nothing to lose. That would never have occurred to me to say that the reason she sat there was because she felt she had nothing to lose, but she did. And in fact, when you when you and I look at that, she had a lot to lose. She lost her job. 
she had well, her life as well. I mean, she was married. She, I mean, she could have lost quite easily had, lost her life. Her husband, her, her husband was very much against her following through on this, and yet she felt she had nothing to lose. Now, in part, she ascribes that attitude to her grandfather and who, who raised her, and her grandfather would not would not sit back in one of the one of the uh, episodes that she recounts there were ku klux klan rallies against american troops at the end of world war one black american troops who wanted civil rights and he sat in their home with a shotgun across his uh, uh legs and Rosa Parks was sitting in the back, was laying in bed. And she looked at him and he said, I probably will get killed if they come through that door, but I'm going to take one of them with us. Yeah, we had actually a show about that post-war period and, and race, uh, riots in um, in uh, Arkansas, not too far from Alabama. What about uh, Muhammad Atta? much less admirable figure than Rosa Parks, perhaps not quite as evil as Adolf Hitler. Um, it, does he fall into the same category? He clearly was a suicide bomber, so I guess any suicide bomber feels as if they have nothing to lose. Well, there's a, I mean, the, the question is, what motivates, or well, my question... Especially was, someone like Atta, who was from Hamburg, who was reasonably well-educated, who clearly, again, had a life to lose. Um, uh, he, he wasn't... Um, uh, he, he, his life wasn't entirely hopeless. Not at all. And, and uh, the question is, what motivates uh, suicide bombers? And the normal answer, or the answer by many scholars is, well, suicide bombers are overwhelmingly Islam, uh, Muslim, uh, because that's what we've seen over the past 40 years, at least in the press. And therefore, they have a religious uh, outlook on life, and their goal is to enter paradise. And they have been convinced that being a martyr for the Muslim cause will bring them to paradise. The cause quite literally then, sorry, it's quite literally a, a Hail Mary. Yes, because they say, look, if I am, if I'm going to die, that is just a way to get into heaven. So there is no downside. I mean, the current life is simply a corridor for, to, to paradise. So we usually think of that as a product of, uh, of uh, Islam, or at least perhaps a perversion of Islam. But in point of fact... I think it's certainly... A, a, we've had a number of shows about uh, Islam and, and Sharia law, and I don't think um, the book, the Quran, ever suggests suicide I, bombing I can be justified. But that's another Islam. issue. Yeah, it's a perversion of Islam. And we think, well, that's the overwhelming uh, explanation for why people become uh, suicide bombers. But 25% of the suicide bombers uh, in the last uh, quarter of the 20th century 
were completely faithless. They were irreligious. They were Tamil tigers fighting for the independence in their independence in Sri Lanka. And clearly, paradise was not the attraction. They didn't believe in it. What was the attraction? Well, a large fraction, almost 40% of uh, Tamil Tiger uh, suicide bombers were women, compared with almost none. Uh, well, well, none certainly in the 9-11 bombers, but very few in uh, it, during that period in uh, in um, uh, uh, Islamic sumo suicide bombers. So what motivated these uh, Tamil Tigers? The answer seems to have been many of these women had been raped in combat. And a raped woman in the patriarchal society had no value. And she had one way to redeem her honor. And that was to become a suicide bomber because she had downside protection. What was the downside? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, so quite literally I mean, nothing to lose. Uh, Bill, the, the, the subtitle of your book is The Hail Mary Effect in Politics, War and Business. You write quite a lot about. Here we have a headline from today about Biden and Nixon and the economic powers of a superpower. Um, you write also about Woodrow Wilson. How were Wilson and Nixon examples of, of, of uh, presidents who, for better or worse, behaved as if they had nothing to lose? Yes, well, this comes to uh, the behavior of lame duck presidents. So in the United States, uh, if, if you served two terms, if you served, if you were elected twice and served the majority of both terms, you cannot go and uh, be reelected. And what that means is that in your second term, you are a lame duck. That is, you never have to face voters again. And that makes for downside protection, allowing you to do things that you ordinarily would not do. Now, I give some examples of this in the second half of the 20th century. If you look at Nixon, you look at uh, um, uh, Clinton, uh, you look at uh, Reagan, they all became more reckless. Not Obama, though. I was curious. Obama has always been a very was always a very conservative president. He never behaved as if he had nothing to lose. Perhaps he was more careful with his legacy, particularly well, as all, the first African American president. Do you they think? were all worried about their legacy, and they therefore overextended themselves. Did things to cover up their earlier terms. So uh, uh, Reagan covered up the Iran counter scandal. Nixon covered up the Watergate scandal. Uh, Clinton was impeached for lying about uh, his affair with Monica Lewinsky. They all did things more recklessly in their second term. But you know, I can tell stories. What I really want is a controlled experiment. Now, economists can't make controlled experiments. But this time, history gave us a controlled experiment. 
with Woodrow Wilson. He faced World War I, the Great War, in both of his terms. And in his first term, he refused to enter the Great War despite provocation. There were 128 Americans lost in the when the Lusitania was torpedoed. And yet, uh, Wilson did nothing. Why? He wanted to be reelected. In fact, he won re-election on the phrase, he kept us out of war. And yet, three months after his uh, re-election in 1916, a month after his inauguration, he declares war on Germany. And Churchill, in his, uh, as a historian, said he could have done all of this in 1915 during the Lusitania, when the Lusitania was torpedoed. He could have saved so many lives. Why did Wilson wait? He wanted to be reelected. He wanted downside protection. So American presidents become reckless in their second terms. They should come with a warning label, easy to provoke. Well, I, I think most people would probably agree now that it was the right decision to be to become involved in the First World War. Anyway, um, the third part of your book is on business, and 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 one of the the business uh, power of nothing to lose um, parables that you uh, you write about is the the story of Nick Leeson, uh, English trader. Now he's up on on Twitter. Is very much involved in the collapse of Bearings Bank. You know a lot about this stuff, Bill. Uh, what, um, what, what, what does uh, Leeson tell us about the power of nothing to lose? Well, Nick Leeson uh, came from a poor family, uh, and he saw an opportunity uh, to work for Bearings Bank. Now, Bearings Bank. Is an illustrious has an illustrious history. It was uh, it, it was founded in 1762. It was uh, more than 200 years old. It uh, helped Thomas Jefferson uh, finance the Louisiana Purchase. It managed the Queen's uh, portfolio investments. So this was a great British firm, and Nick Leeson came and got a job. As, uh, as a uh, trader for, uh, for Baring in Singapore. And he was also managing the Singapore office. And what he looked for was a way to change his life, a way to buy a Porsche. And what that meant was, I'm going to take some risks as a trader. Why do you take a risk as a trader? Well, if I make money, I will get a big bonus and I can buy the Porsche. But if I lose money, they don't make me pay back my losses. That's the way traders are, traders at all institutions, which is why almost every bank 
monitors their traders. They monitor them because they have an incentive to be reckless because they have a natural downside protection. But Nick Leeson had a special role. Not only was he a trader, Barings also let him monitor the Singapore accounts. Well, this was a disaster because by the time the London office of Barings figured out that what Leeson had been doing, which was what he would call punting, um, taking big risks, he had already lost twice as much capital as Barings had, and the firm declared bankruptcy after 200 years of gloried existence. Bill, you seem to be almost excited by recklessness. What's the most reckless thing you've ever done? Ride a motorcycle and trade for my own account. I was, in fact, a trader. So, I so you were a bit of a Nick Leeson yourself. Well, when you trade for your own money, which is what I did when I was on the floor of the commodities exchange. So I don't know whether you've seen the best, the best movie about trading of all time. And that is Trading Places. And in Trading Places, there was scenes of people on the floor of the exchanges screaming and yelling. It was the most exciting thing I ever did aside from riding a motorcycle. And when you trade your own money, like I did, I did not have downside protection. So I did not just get in there and say, close my eyes, try buy something and hope it goes up. Because if it went down, I lost my own money. Yeah, you, would know, you weren't Aaron Rodgers, were you? Well, I certainly, well, I was more like Aaron Rodgers. Uh, 58 minutes of a game because he too is cautious. He too is careful. He too doesn't want to get intercepted. It's only in the last 10 seconds, 20 seconds where he becomes a daredevil. Well, let me put it the, the question slightly differently. If you knew you only had a day left in the world, what would you do? I tell you, my answer to this is well, I would well, have uh, I would have unlimited uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Ah, yes. Well, you know what? Then you've put me on you. You've 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 put the seed in there. I want a barrel of chocolate mousse. Oh, a barrel? Would you go? Would you would you soak in that barrel, or you would eat it? I would jump in and just keep on eating. And on your own or with some uh, nubile well, companions? You know, Andrew, uh, you and I will have our own discussion and we can discuss We can it. do it together, Bill. Well, we began this with um, reference to Adolf Hitler. Uh, so we have to end with some references to uh, our own Adolf Hitler of our times, the great Donald Trump. Apparently, he would beat Biden today and particularly in the context of the Afghan disaster, um, on Fox, it says Trump rips Biden's Afghan actions. Our country has never been so humiliated. I, it occurred to me, having read your book, that Trump is very good at behaving as if he has nothing to lose, although he does have a lot to lose. Do you think that's fair about Trump? Well, look, um, I do have a, a, a number of sections in the book devoted to Trump. 
Right, I know. That's why I bring him up at the end. Yes, the one that, that I think is most uh, telling is uh, he wrote a book, The Art of the Deal, and his mantra is protect the downside. The upside will take care of itself. He writes this and he talks about it. And that's exactly why in 2016 he was able to have these outrageous slogans, which nobody else would have. Lock up Hillary Clinton. Uh, make the Mexicans pay for the wall. Who says that? And the answer is, when you have nothing to lose, no one expected him to win. No one expected the outcome that we have today, which is this irrational uh, fixation of the Republican Party. No one believed that was possible. And in fact, in 2020, when the campaign was coming to a close and it seemed that Trump was not going to win, Alex Conant, who was a Republican strategist, described the end game. And that is, he says, the knives come out. The donors flee and the candidate throws irresponsible Hail Marys. We're back to Roger Stauerbach and Aaron Rodgers. Hail Marys, the Hail Mary pass, the Hail Mary, all covered in uh, William L. Silver's uh, very, very entertaining and provocative new book, The Power of Nothing to Lose, The Hail Mary Effect in Politics, War and Business. We all do indeed have something to lose in COVID, Bill. We have to stay at home. In addition to your new book, I know you're it in your retreat in New Jersey at the moment. Uh, what else should people be reading in addition to your new book, The Power of Nothing to Lose? Well, I'm glad you asked me because I had an article uh, in uh, the Wall Street Journal this past weekend, and the title was based on the book. It said, The Five Best Underdog Books. This was oh. about which are, which are the best underdog books. I picked five. They gave me the right to pick five of them and talk about them, and write, and I did write about them. And of course, American history has one of the greatest underdog presidents. Dewey defeats Truman. The wow. 1948 election. There's Harry Truman showing the newspaper, the Chicago Tribune's title. Dewey defeats Truman. There is an underdog who showed us how to win. Well, we're Bill Silver. I think the next show we're going to do eating Kentucky Fried Chicken in a, in a vat of chocolate uh, mousse a uh, to satisfy both of our uh, fetishes uh, when we have nothing to lose. A real honor and a pleasure. Congratulations on the new book. Very entertaining. Uh, the power of nothing to lose. Keep well, keep provoking, and keep gambling. Keep uh, doing things which no one quite expected of you. Bill Silber, thanks so much. Thank you for being here. It was a pleasure.